Can everyone hear me? Great. Um, well, it's, uh, um, I want to thank George for that wonderful introduction. Uh, I'm sorry Yusuf couldn't be here, but it's an honor uh, to be introduced by you, George. Uh, and I want to thank ASBMB um, for this award. Um, I'm really humbled um, to be among such great company. Um, so for those of you guys who don't know me, my lab um, is a structural biology lab that focuses on lipid metabolism. Uh, and we particularly focused on um, enzymes that modify lipids um, in cell membranes. So there's th many different types of lipids, and we focus uh, on, on several different types, phospholipids, phingolipids, and sterols. Uh, and we try to answer three basic questions. How do the structure of these enzymes allow them to recognize their unique hydrophobic substrates? Uh, and how do they interact with the membrane during catalysis? Secondly, how are these, enzyme how are these enzymes regulated, um, either through interaction with protein effectors um, or interactions with specific lipids inside of membranes? And then lastly, a small part of my lab works on therapeutic development. Um, for example, we've recently, um, in collaboration with a, a large team, helped um, characterize a sterile glucosidase from a fungal pathogen um, and have identified inhibitors that prevent um, dissemination of this pathogen to the brain uh, in a mouse model of infection. Um, but what I want to tell you about today um, is one of my favorite enzymes. Um, it's called lipin or lipin phosphatidic acid phosphatase. Uh, and it's really a key enzyme in triglyceride um, and phospholipid synthesis. Uh, so this is, these are the people that did the work, uh, a master's student, Wei Jing and Valerie, um, and a senior scientist in the lab, um, Xu Zhuan. She refuses to give me a picture of herself, so this is the best um, picture that I have of her. Um, but I'm very grateful to, to have her in the lab. Um, she's amazing. Uh, and also very grateful for our collaborations. Um, so lipin is involved in triglyceride synthesis, and triglycerides, um, if you just heard Bob and Toby's talk, they're the major form of, of energy storage long-term in our body. Um, they're synthesized in a process where free fatty acids um, are converted to triglycerides in, in the process called li um, lipogenesis, and this is the process that lipin plays a role in. Um, once they're in, um, generated, they can be stored in lipocyte, uh, lipid droplets, for example, in adipocytes, and then later broken down in lipolysis or lipophagy, um, to regenerate those, those fatty acids. Um, so just to give you an idea of the role of lipin in um, um, triglyceride synthesis, this is some work from Karen Rui's lab um, several years ago. She generated a transgenic mouse where she overexpresses lipin. Uh, and you can see that the mouse on the left where it's overexpressing lipin is just severely obese. Uh, it also has um, insulin resistance, and this is because it has increased ability to store fat uh, and uh, decreased energy expenditure. Conversely, if you uh, have an inactive lipin, uh, this is from a, a, a mouse model, a fatty liver dystrophy mouse model, um, your adipocytes fail to differentiate and you have a complete loss of adipose tissue. Uh, and I'll just note, so this, this is, you can see this here, wild-type mouse and then a, a mutant uh, with lipin has been inactivated. This is, can actually occur just from a single point mutant in the lipin, a glycine to arginine mutation. So what are lipins? So lipins are phosphatidic acid phosphatases. Um, they play a really key role um, in both um, in phospholipid synthesis and triglyceride synthesis. Uh, and the major pathway in most tissues is called um, the glycerol 3 um, phosphate pathway. So in this pathway, you start off with the soluble molecule glycerol 3 phosphate. It gets sequentially acylated, so two acyl chains get added, uh, and then you form phosphatidic acid. So this is the substrate for lipin. Lipin um, dephosphorylates phosphatidic acid and makes diacylglycerol. 
and this is going to be isolated once more to find triacylglycerol or, or TAG and be stored in lipid droplets um, or packaged into lipoproteins. So it plays a key role in triglyceride synthesis, but like I said, it also um, um, controls a really key branching point of phospholipid synthesis. Phosphatidic acid and diacylglycerol are the precursors for different phospholipids. Uh, and there are also signaling molecules that, that can activate different uh, molecules like prote protein kinase C. So lipid plays a really import, uh, important role in these, these process. What I want to point out is that lipid uh, is the only um, peripheral membrane enzyme uh, in this glycerol 3-phosphate pathway. All the other enzymes are integral membrane en uh, enzymes that are constitutively associated with the endoplasmic reticulum. Lipin has to, is a soluble enzyme. It has to translocate from the cytosol to the ER where it can recognize its substrate uh, and generate diacylglycerol. So understanding how lipin interacts with the membrane is really key um, part of its regulation. So for us, uh, one of the key questions um, was how do these really conserved regions um, come together uh, to form a functional enzyme. And so what you're looking at here is the domain architecture of lipin. They're fairly large proteins, about 900 residues, uh, and they conserve two um, regions throughout evolution. They're very creatively named. Uh, we have the N-terminal domain of lipin, or NLIP, uh, and that resides on the N-terminus. Uh, and so when we started our work, um, the, the structure of this region was unknown and its function was also unknown. Um, but we knew it was important for enzyme activity. And the reason was, was that glycine to arginine mutation that can um, inactivate lipin in, in those mice is located within this NLIP. On the opposite end of the protein molecule, you have the C-terminal domain of lipin, or the C-lip. Um, we know this is the catalytic domain. It belongs to this really large superfamily of enzymes called haloacid dehalogenases. Uh, it's been extensively characterized by Karen Allen at Boston University. Uh, and they all contain this DXDXT motif that binds the magnesium ion and, and helps um, carry out dephosphorylation of different substrates. So we wanted to understand how does this NLIP and CLIP cooperate to form a functional enzyme. Um, but as a structural biologist, it's a really difficult protein to work with. Separating them is about 500 residues, and all these residues are, are mostly predicted to be intrinsically disordered. They're really important for the regulation of the enzyme. This is where it gets phosphorylated to control its activity and localization. Um, but um, it's very difficult to structurally characterize an enzyme. So we started to look at different homologs outside of humans. If you look at Saccharomyces um, cerevisiae pa one that's been uh, some seminal work done by Gil Suha and, and George Carmen's lab, uh, you see that the NLIP and, and CLIP um, are absolutely conserved. And I'll just point out, sometimes I'll, I'll say lipin, and sometimes I'll say um, PA, and that's because it's, uh, in yeast, we call them phosphatidic acid phosphohydrolases. It's a, a slightly more accurate name, but lipin uh, was identified before we knew the enzyme. So sometimes I might say lipin, sometimes I might say PA. Okay, so Saccharomyces PA1 also contains these regions, but they also have these really large intrinsically disordered regions that are important for regulation, but a, a structural biologist's nightmare. So we tried to come up with a creative approach. Uh, and the approach we took was we said, well, maybe there's an unregulated lipin in some organism that, that doesn't have these linkers and directly fuses the NLIP and CLIP, and that would be a good model system for us to characterize. And so what we did was we just took the NLIP um, from humans and then artificially fused it to the CLIP, and we used these domain-enhanced blast searches to look and see if, if there was in any organism. And when we did that, we were really happy. We were really um, excited. We found about 10 lipins uh, in different organisms that directly fuse the NLIP and CLIP. 
And most of these were from plants from the Solanocerum family of plants that give us some of our favorite fruits and vegetables. Uh, tomato, my favorite, spicy pepper, potato, um, and uh, my grandpa's favorite, the tobacco plant. So, um, so we went to the grocery store, we got cDNA, we cloned all these genes, um, and we tried our hands on all of them. Um, and the one that uh, ended up working for us was actually from a um, unicellular um, eukaryote, a ciliate, from Tetrahymena thermophila. Um, so this is a eukaryote, and uh, during our work, it was actually um, characterized uh, and named um, TTPA2. Uh, so Valerie in the lab went out to solve the first structure. So she actually purified TTPA2, she biochemically characterized it to show it was active, uh, and then she crystallized it and determined its structure using selenomethionine sad phasing. Um, so here's the first structure of a lipin-pa-phosphatidic acid phosphatase. The first thing you can see is that there's two domains, uh, one here and one here. Uh, we know this is the, um, the catalytic domain. It belongs to that family, haloacid dehalogenases. They usually use magnesium for their enzyme activity. We had calcium in our crystallization conditions. Um, so that was bound in the active site, but we know this is, this is the active site. This is the part that needs to interact with the membrane um, surface of the enzyme. The other thing we noticed was that there was an immunoglobulin domain on the left that was packing against this catalytic domain to stabilize it. So it's quite rare to find immunoglobulin domains in cytosolic proteins. They're usually extracellular. So that was kind of neat. Um, but what was more neat was that the, this domain wasn't just formed by the NLIP. So the NLIP is uh, color-coded in blue, and then the CLIP is in pink. And what you can see is that the NLIP and CLIP are actually co-folding together to form this domain. Uh, and in TTPA2, they're only separated by, they're directly fused, right? So there's only two residues beneath them. And those two residues are right here. They're right at this loop in this beta hairpin. But in humans, that's going to be 500 residues. So you can imagine this really long linker in human. So the next big question was, how does TTPA2 and lipins interact with the membrane? And so to do this, we you know, collaborated with John Burke. Uh, and the first thing we did was we identified using liposome sedimentation assays, what type of lipid composition does this enzyme like to bind to? To do this experiment, you generate artificial membranes called liposomes. You ultracentrifuge them. The liposomes will pellet. And if your protein interacts with the, those liposomes, they will pellet at the bottom of the tube. And you can analyze the supernatant and the pellet using SDS page. So once you've identified those conditions, then you use a technique, or John uses a technique called hydrogen deuterium exchange mass spectrometry. So if you haven't heard of this technique, it takes advantage of the fact that the amide hydrogens in your peptide bonds um, are always, ex those hydrogen atoms are always exchanging with the hydrogens from water. So if you incubate your protein with heavy water or deuterium, then those will exchange uh, with deuterium, uh, and then you can measure that mass change in that peptide using mass spectrometry. So the exchange rate of that is dependent on two main factors. One is solvent accessibility, it has to be able to interact with water, uh, and the other is the degree of secondary structure, right? So if you're forming an alpha helix, right, and that helix is stapled together by hydrogen bonds, uh, the exchange rate of those hydrogens is gonna be much slower. So, once, uh, so what the experiment involves is you do this experiment and you do it in the protein alone, and then you do it in the comparison when the protein's bound to a membrane. And regions that might be interacting with that membrane would then be protected from exchange or regions that might form new secondary structure. And so you can color code them um, by blue and, and pick this up using mass spectrometry. So what Valerie did first was she actually figured out what types of lipids does um, TTPA2 like to interact with. Uh, and this is just looking at a liposome um, co-sedimentation assay. Um, what you can see is that if you look at neutral lipids like phosphatidylcholine and phosphatidylethanolamine, uh, most of the protein is in the supernatant and very little of it is in the pellet. 
Um, but if we add in the substrate lipid phosphatidic acid, you can now see that you've shifted most of the protein um, to the pellet. Uh, and so it's really interacting strongly with these liposomes. And, and I'll just point out that the same thing we find, uh, others have found, um, with human lipids and, and saccharomyces. So it seems like this enzyme is really recruited to membranes by its substrate. Uh, so well, then we did the hydrogen deuterium exchange mass spectrometry experiment. And what we're looking at here is we're actually mapping the, the peptides that were protected from exchange onto the structure. So if they're protected from exchange, they're now color-coded blue. And these would be regions that would be interacting with the membrane. And the darker the blue, then the, the greater degree of protection uh, in, that, in this experiment. And so what we found was that there was three main sites um, that were interacting with the membrane. One was the active site that you can see here. And this makes sense, because the enzyme uh, active site has to interact with the membrane. Uh, the other was this um, uh, peptide in the immunoglobulin domain. So we think this immunoglobulin domain can also interact with the membrane. Uh, and then another part was this um, on the N-terminus, this putative N-terminal amphipathic helix. And so, uh, in our crystal structure construct, it was present, but we didn't have any electron density, so we presume it was disordered. Um, but in this experiment, we had a massive degree of protection uh, um, from the deuterium exchange. And so it looks like it's actually going from a disordered peptide to an alpha helix in the presence of a membrane, uh, where one side of the helix would be hydrophobic and the other would be hydrophilic. And so this suggested to us that this could be the main driver of membrane association. And so if we delete this, then we should lose um, membrane binding. Um, and so if we do that exact experiment, we do, um, Valerie did that, and we do lose binding. So when we delete that helix, uh, we have a complete loss of membrane binding. So now we sort of shifted our focus to understanding how the mammalian lipids are regulated. Uh, um, and one of the first questions we wanted to ask was, how do they bind membranes? Uh, and so we, we purified, or Shuzhuan in the lab purified um, full-length mouse lipin-1. We redid that experiment with um, John Burke uh, and mapped it onto a model of the NC-lip fusion of uh, mouse lipin-1. I won't talk too much about it, just to say that we basically see the exact same regions protected in mouse lipin-1 that we see in TTPA2. The active site, this N-terminal helix that we think is important for membrane binding, and also the immunoglobulin domain. What also came out of this work was that we identified a third domain that was unknown before. Uh, and we called this the middle lipin domain, or the MLIP. Um, and so we sought out to really characterize the function of this, this MLIP. And one of the first things we did was, let's see if we solve the structure of this domain. Um, if it looks like something with a known function, then that might give us a clue what it's doing. Um, so Wei Jing, a master's student in the lab, solved um, the crystal structure of the MLIP domain from actually mouse lipin 1, 2, and um, um, in several different crystal forms. Uh, and we were really excited because this was actually a new protein fold that had never been described before. Um, but then we were at the same time really frustrated because it was a new protein fold and it didn't give us any clues about its function. Um, but what we could tell was two main things. One was that uh, it formed a dimer. So one subunit here is in green, another subunit here is in blue. Uh, and you can see that they're sort of shaking hands with each other uh, through these alpha-3 helices. The other thing that we noticed was that if you look at the sequence conservation and map it onto the structure, the bottom face of this domain is almost, uh, almost absolutely conserved. And so that suggested to us that this face of the protein might be binding to something like a membrane. And so we sat around and we scratched our head for a while, like, look, what other experiments could we do? And then we said, okay, well, let's just express it in cells and then see if it goes to membranes. That's pretty easy. Uh, and so we did that experiment. We fused um, um, GFP to the MLIP domain. 
uh, and use confocal microscopy. And what you can see is if you look at an ER marker and where the MLIP domain goes, the localization is almost perfect. So it looks like this domain alone is able to, to bind uh, to the endoplasmic reticulum. And in vitro, if you, we characterized its, its membrane binding properties. You can see that in the presence of neutral lipids, you have about 30% binding of the, the protein. But if you add in phosphatidic acid or some other negatively charged lipids, um, you get almost 100% binding of this domain to membranes. Um, so the next big question was, okay, this, this domain is, is great. It's a dimerization domain. It binds membranes. But is it important for function? Um, what is the role of this? Uh, and so I'm not showing you some of the work that we did, but we actually deleted this domain in the context of the full-length protein. And it does affect the enzyme activity of lipin uh, in a lipid sort of specific um, uh, manner. Uh, it doesn't get rid of the activity completely. Um, that makes sense because it's not a catalytic domain. Um, but it does reduce the activity. Um, but what about in cells? Um, and so for this work, we um, collaborated with Karen Rui um, and Juan Wang, a postdoc in her lab at the time. And we took advantage of the fact that lipin has a really important um, role in adipocyte differentiation. Uh, and if you overexpress lipin in a, in a pre-adipocyte, it can actually speed up that process. Uh, and so what we did was we took um, wild-type lipin and then um, full-length protein where we've deleted this MLIP. Uh, we transfect them into these uh, adipocytes and then use a protocol to, um, for adipocyte uh, maturation and follow gene expression profiles and then also finally lipid accumulation that we can monitor using um, um, a red stain, an oil red stain um, um, that you can see here. So what you can see in short is that when the full-length protein, uh, wild-type protein can speed up this differentiation process and leads to increased lipid storage earlier in this process. But when we delete the MLIP domain, we don't see that same thing. So it's saying it is important for the, the function inside of a cell. Uh, and so this, I'll end my talk here just sort of summarizing what we've, we've found out um, structurally. Um, this is a, a complex architecture, and we still have a lot to learn. Um, but what we've learned so far is that the, the NLIP and the CLIP, they co-fold together to form this immunoglobulin domain uh, that packs against this catalytic domain um, to stabilize it. Uh, the NLIP also contains this amphipathic helix that's really important throughout evolution for lipins to bind to membranes. And then mammalian lipins actually have a third domain, this middle lipin domain, um, that can bind membranes itself. But since it dimerizes, it also doubles the number of membrane binding sites and we think might affect uh, the affinity for this protein um, um, to bind to membranes. Um, so again, we're, we're working hard on the regulation of this enzyme and the full-length protein to see how the dynamics of this, this sort of um, very large and intrinsically disordered regions um, affect the structure. Um, but I'll conclude my talk there, and I just want to thank again Valerie, who's actually in this picture, uh, and, and really my entire group, uh, Wei Jing and Xu Zhuan, who did some of this work. Um, our collaborators, um, Karen Rui, uh, Wan Wang, John Burke, um, all my funding so uh, sources, and also, I just want to point out that uh, right after this next session at 5 o'clock, uh, if you want to hear about some of our work on lipid storage, uh, Yang Mi, a graduate student in the lab, is giving a talk um, just down the hall. And then with that, I would thank you for your attention and be happy to take questions.